Good morning, Journey. So we had an unbelievable week at camp. We're glad to bring a little bit of camp back to you. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Judges chapter 1. Take your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. Maybe fire up your Journey Church International app if you're following along that way. Welcome to those of you who are streaming with us right now. Last Sunday, our teens had a 22-hour bus ride down to Panama City Beach, Florida, if you can imagine that. 22 hours. If you've ever been on a ride that long or if you've ever um, had kids on a ride that long, you know if it wasn't said that they had to think at least 21 times on this 22-hour trip, this question, are, are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's a really long bus ride to take, but it's nothing compared to the 900-year journey that Israel had been on to get where they were supposed to go. In Judges chapter 1, verse 1, as we start the entire book, we're in a series this summer called Judges, studying the heroes of the faith so we can be encouraged in our faith to learn how to stand strong. We get to Judges chapter 1, and we see this nearly 1,000-year journey is still not done. It says, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is supposed to go up first to fight against the Canaanites. Now, here's what you need to know. If you want to, in your Bible, just write 900 years next to verse 1. 900 years before this, God told a man named Abraham, Canaan is actually where you and your family are going to live. In about 2100 BC, God told Abraham, go to Canaan. That's going to be where you live. Abraham got to Canaan, and there were people there. So he kept going and said, God, I thought this was supposed to be to our, our house, but apparently we're not there yet because there are other people there. 300 years later, a man named Joseph, who was a Hebrew, but ruling in the Egyptian government died. And he told the people when he died, God is going to take us home. When we get there, take my bones with you. About 500 years later, that would happen. Joshua would lead a conquest, but in Joshua's lifetime, only half of the land was settled. And we get to Judges chapter one, verse one. And now in the 900th year of the promise, the people are like, who, who's going who's gonna to go take the land now? And at some point, some of them had to think, my gosh, can't we be done? Like, can't we be done with this 900-year journey? Does someone have to keep going up and taking more land? And they chose in Judges chapter 1, God said, go. They said, no. And they just settled. And here's what we read happening in Judges chapter 1. Go to verse 19. The people asked, who's going to go up first? They said, the tribe of Judah should go first. In verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. So we're told about two of the nine states in Israel that were supposed to be in Canaan. Judah, Benjamin, neither one settled their area. Go down to verse 20. We read about the rest of the states that are supposed to be there. But Manasseh, another state, did not drive out the people of Bashan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land when Israel became strong. They pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim, there is another state, drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. 
but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun, another state, drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Naholo. But these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher, there's another state, drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alib or Azkib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive, out, drive them out. Neither did Naphtali, there's another state, drive out those living in Beit Shemesh or Bet Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanites, inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beit Shemesh and Beit Anath became forced laborers for them. All in all, eight of the nine tribes that were supposed to settle west of the Jordan River, eight of the nine tribal states that were supposed to have states in the west side of the Jordan River failed to complete the mission that God called them to. Eight out of nine failed. That is not a very high success rate. Judah failed. Benjamin failed. Manasseh failed. Ephraim failed. Zebulun failed. Asher failed. Naphtali failed. Dan, we read, will fail miserably in Judges chapter 20 and 21. The only tribe not mentioned is Issachar. They fail so badly. The only time we even hear them mentioned is when a female judge named Deborah says to Issachar, you don't have one man among you who will even join the military and fight for your families, much less our country or our God. Eight out of the nine tribes got it wrong. And here is why. Judges chapter 1 could be summarized this way. The mission has failed because the forward movement has stopped. The mission has failed because the forward movement has stopped. The people got tired of battling. They just said, can't we be there now? Are we there yet? Isn't this good enough? Let me ask you a question as you sit here this morning. Are you moving forward spiritually or have you settled? Are you taking new ground spiritually or have you settled? Is God calling you to more or are you saying, can't this just be enough now? Because as we look at Judges chapter 1, the summary is the mission failed because the people stopped. I told you last week, Judges is the bad news sequel to Joshua. In Joshua, the people continued. As a matter of fact, we don't see Joshua ever not fighting battles. But as Joshua fought battles, blessings came into his life. And as blessings came into his life, he saw the promises of God fulfilled. On the last day of his life, he would say this about a life of battle versus a life of rest. He would say in Joshua 23, 14, Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm getting ready to die. But you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Joshua got to the end of his life of battle and he never stopped moving forward. And because of that, God never stopped fulfilling his promises to him. Joshua got to the end of his life and he said, everything God promised me, if I would pursue him, has happened. God hasn't failed me one time. If I had to battle some things in life every now and then to get there, yes, but I never stopped moving and God never stopped blessing. That is the promise of your Christianity if you're in the room and you're a Christian today. The promise of your Christianity is if you will keep moving, God will keep blessing, and every promise that God has for you will be fulfilled. You say, Christian, where is that? Philippians 1.6 says it this way. Paul, speaking to the church in Philippi, says, I'm confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm confident that God who has started working in you will finish working in you if you just keep moving forward. Some of you say, that sounds great, but can't we just be there now? Like, when are we going to be there? When are we going to be at that place where I feel like God has given me everything that I need? Like Joshua, you're going to realize that only happens if you're willing to keep fighting every day and keep moving to the next thing God has for you in your life. If you quit and stand still, you go backwards. There are really only two drive shafts on the car of Christianity. There's forward and there's reverse. There's not neutral because neutral is backwards. You're going forward or you're going in reverse. And you say, well, I'm just sick of battling. So were the Israelites and judges and bad things happened to them. You say, what do we have to do? When my son Christian was little, probably between like 18 months and 36 months, old, he watched the movie Finding Nemo every day of his life, like just on repeat. Like that was his car movie. That was his cry movie. That was his sleep movie, a movie about a little fish who lost his wife. And then his son got taken from him and he had to go find him along the way. This fish met a little blue fish named Dory. Nemo met Dory. Dory was voiced by Ellen DeGeneres, a great little ADD character that bounced around. And the only thing she could get right was that you just have to keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, like just keep swimming. That was like her mantra that seemed pointless until Nemo and Dory found themselves caught in a fisherman's net. And one day they looked up, they were caught in a fisherman's net. Not only was their mission not going to continue, their life wasn't going to continue. They were being pulled out of the sea. They didn't know what to do. And Dory started telling everyone, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. All the fish started pushing and they broke out of that net so they could continue their mission. Let me ask you this question today. What spiritual net have you become trapped in that has just stopped your journey spiritually? Like God found you in a certain place and he has called you to a certain place, but somewhere along there, a net has captured you and stopped your journey. You know, I've been doing ministry about 20 years now. If you say, Christian, what have you seen stop people the most? When God finds people in one place and calls them to another place, what's the thing you've seen stop people the most? Honestly, busyness. That to me is the biggest net that people get caught in, just busyness. But I've also seen struggling marriages just stop spiritual growth in its track. I've seen difficult parenting stop spiritual growth in its track. I've seen jobs that get hard, go wrong, need to be transitioned, stop people spiritually in their tracks. I've seen a health crisis in families, whether it's in their life or the life of someone they know, stop people in their tracks spiritually. I've seen conflicts in relationships and conflicts in churches stop people spiritually in their tracks. I've watched people struggle financially and allow that to stop them from where they're, from where they're going spiritually. I've watched people struggle with addiction who refuse to admit it and get help be stopped in their tracks. I've watched people develop an unhealthy circle of friends that really stop them from what God has has called them to do. I've watched people who the next step of their faith demands more courage and boldness than they've ever had. And because of that, they're stuck in their faith. I've watched people who place their identity in things other than Jesus alone, who when that thing goes wrong, they get totally stopped in their faith. What is the net from where God found you to where God wants you? What's the thing that if you are stalled today has just captured you? Because if you will keep pursuing Jesus, you can bust right through that net and continue your mission. The reality is this, God will. God, not God might, God will 
fulfill every good promise he's ever given you, but you have to keep moving forward. God will fulfill every good promise he's given you, but you have to keep moving forward. That's why we're studying the book of Judges this summer, because we want to learn how to push towards the promises of God. The apostle Paul told the church in Corinth that every now and then we should study the Old Testament scriptures because they will help us be strong in our faith. We read this verse last week as kind of the foundation of our series, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. Paul said these things, the Old Testament was written. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, those of us who know Jesus. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul says, go study the Old Testament because it will help you realize you can't quit moving forward. You have to keep swimming. You have to keep fighting. You have to keep battling because as soon as you think you're in neutral, you are going backwards. From there, we meet the first judge of Israel. We'll study a different judge every Sunday this summer. Here we meet the first judge. His name is Othniel. Judges chapter 3 tells us the scenario and the story of Othniel. Turn there if you haven't already. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible. It says, these are the nations, Judges 3, 1, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previously had battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines were left. All the Canaanites were left, the Sidonians, the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. From there, we meet the first judge in verse 7. Skip down a verse. It said, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals. And the Asherahs, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aaron Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, who was Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel who overpowered them. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. We see three things in Judges chapter 3 that help us understand today in 2018 how we can stand firm spiritually. I don't know that God could have lined the stars up any better than to have us study this judge, this message, this text on this Sunday, on a Sunday where our kids come back so filled with faith. What a great Sunday to have our parents challenged with faith like we have been in Judges chapter 3. What do we learn? Number one, we learn the evil in Israel. We learn the evil in Israel, it's not as bad as you think it is, and it is worse than you think it is at the exact same time. You say, what was the evil of the Israelites? Judges 3, 7 said the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and here is their evil, they forgot God. You say, that's not that bad. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, this was their evil, they forgot 
God. They forgot God and instead worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. What were the Baals and the Asherahs? Those were local regional gods of the land of Canaan. Baal was the god of the storm. They worshiped Baal because Baal would bring rain. Rain would help the economy. The economy would help their pocket. But basically they quit worshiping God because they got too focused on their business and they would worship the Asherahs. What was the Asherah? She was the fertility goddess of Canaan. You would worship Asherah because your family would become more important than your God. Here was the evil of the Israelites. They forgot God because they got so busy in their jobs and in their family that they forgot about the God who provided their jobs and blessed their families. So you said, that doesn't sound that bad. And at the same time, that sounds just like us. They were a generation of people who forgot to worship God because they were so busy in their jobs. They were so busy building their families that they forgot about the God who gave them their jobs and blessed their families. So we have to ask this question. If we don't want to forget God, how do we remember him? How do you remember God? What do you put in place to make sure you don't forget God? Because the Old Testament gives us two ways to forgive God, to, two ways to make sure you don't forget God. How do you remember God? God said, here's how you'll remember me. Letter A, the stories of God in your parents' lives will make sure you never forget me. How do you remember God? You listen to the spiritual stories in your parents' lives. Last week we read Judges chapter, chapter 2. Verses 7 and 10, and I was frustrated as I read these verses because we saw an entire generation who just forgot about God. But I wasn't frustrated maybe with the generation that you were frustrated with. Here's what we read last week in Judges chapter 2. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the lifetime of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 10, but after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I read that and I was not frustrated with the generation who did not know God. I wasn't frustrated with the third generation. Joshua was the first, the third for God. I was frustrated with the second. Because the only way the third generation could have known about God is if the second generation told them. And the only way the third generation could have forgot about God is if the second generation forgot to talk about God anymore. I read that and I was frustrated with the second generation that they would allow their parents to fight for the land of Israel. And then they would take it without passing on all that information to their children. Because God's strategy for the people of Israel to remember him was this. I trust the parents. Before he trusted the church, before he trusted pastors, before he trusted preachers, before he trusted youth pastors, before he trusted small group leaders, before he trusted denominations, God said, here's my plan. I'm just going to trust the parents. The parents tell the kids, the kids tell their kids, on and on and on. As long as I can trust the parents, no one will ever forget. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read the great Shema, behold, old Israel, the Lord our God is one. Worship the God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus would add on to that. And then they would say, here's how you're going to do that. Parents are going to tell their kids every day of their life, this is who God is to us. It would culminate in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. In the future, when your son asks you, why do you do do all this stuff spiritually? In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of these stipulations, decrees, and laws that the Lord our God has commanded you? What's the reason all this God stuff is in our life? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Parents, tell your story spiritually to your kids. If you don't, they will forget who God is. How do we remember God? Parents, 
tell their spiritual stories to their children. And through their parents, children learn about the God of their fathers. How else do we remember God? Letter B says we have struggles that will make us dependent on God. Now, not all of our struggles are sent from God to get your attention. But God will use all of your struggles to get your attention to focus on him if you will allow him. That's what Judges 3 says. As we start out Judges chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, it says these are the nations that the Lord left to test all those Israelites who'd not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. God said, these people haven't struggled because they've not struggled. They've not had to rely on me because they've not had to rely on me. They may not remember me. You say, that sounds like a mean God who has to use struggles to get you to focus your attention on him. Well, if the parents had done their job, maybe God wouldn't have had to use this strategy. But God said, since the parents haven't told you, I'm going to give you opportunities to struggle because when you struggle, you'll learn to rely on me. And when you rely on me, you will learn to remember me. Sadly, a generation of Israelites got comfortable on the backs of their parents' faith. They got complacent in their own faith and their children paid the price. Joshua's generation was a generation of warriors. The generation after him was very weak spiritually. The generation after them was totally wayward spiritually. So which generation do you fit in? Are you a spiritual warrior? You keep fighting battles so you can move forward in the next stage of your spiritual life? Are you very complacent in where you are? Your past is forgiven. Your eternity is secure. You've got a pretty cool church you can go to every now and then and watch online when you can't be here live and you just kind of finish moving forward. Or are you maybe part of that third generation whose parents never even took you to church? So you're trying to figure out this whole thing for the first time. What this second generation would learn and what you and I need to learn is this. Spiritual shortcuts turn into spiritual slavery. They said, well, we go to church on Christmas and Easter. You know, it's important that my kids know who Jesus is. I send them to camp every year. I send them to vacation Bible school. Spiritual shortcuts lead to spiritual slavery. And Israel in the second generation was looking for a spiritual shortcut. Are we there yet? It's been 900 years. Can't we just stop for a generation? And they did. And their children ended up in spiritual and literal slavery under the hands of the king of Aram, which is modern day Serious, so God number two sent them a judge. Their evil was they forgot God. They got so focused on their work and on their families, they forgot about God and their kids never knew about God. So they ended up in slavery and God sent them a judge. His name was Othniel. Othniel had a different spiritual experience than most of the people in his generation. His was a generation that did not know God, but he was someone who did know God. You say, how? Two ways. First, Othniel had a storytelling father-in-law whose faith had grown through struggle. His name was Caleb. Othniel had a storytelling father-in-law who told his children and the people his children married who God had been to him. His name was Caleb. In Judges chapter 1, we meet him. Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. God said, Judah goes first. Caleb said, I'll go. And Caleb said in Judges 1, 12 and 13, I'll give my daughter Achish in marriage. To the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, who was Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Achash to him in marriage. You say, who is Caleb? Caleb was one of two spies who believed God when no one else believed God. Caleb was one of two spies who said, let's move forward when everyone else said, can't we just stay here? 
Moses was the man that God had called to lead a generation of Israelites out of slavery after 430 years from Egypt. They experienced God's plagues on Egypt. They experienced together walking through the Red Sea. They experienced water from a rock and manna from heaven. And after a one-year journey, they found themselves on the edge of the promised land, all these people who had witnessed God do such miraculous things. And Moses said, we're going to take one of you from each tribe, and you're going to go look at the land and tell us what it looks like. Tell us, is it hilly or is it flat? Tell us what type of people there are. Come back with a report to inspire your brothers and sisters spiritually to move forward. The 12 went in. Only two came back and said, it's just like God said it is, and we can take it. One was named Joshua. One was named Caleb. The other 10, you cannot even pronounce their names. I believe today in our congregation, we have somebody named Joshua and probably somebody named Caleb because we've been celebrating the faith of these guys for more than 3,000 years. I think if the other 10 would have had as much faith, we would all have weird Hebrew names as well mixed into our congregation. Caleb came back. The other 10 said, listen, there are people there, just like Abraham. God, we thought this was our land, but there are people there, and they have cities, and they have weapons, and they're already settled, and I don't think we can go. And they convinced the Israelites, we got to go back to Egypt. This is not our home. Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can go. This is where God wants us to go. But the people said, no, they turned their backs on God, and God said this, every one of those men over the age of 20 who refused to go fight in faith, who refused to keep moving forward in faith, they will die in the desert like they said they would. We'd rather die in the desert than go take it in battle. But he said, Joshua and Caleb, I'm going to let them live to see the promised land settled. 40 years later, Caleb's 85 years old. They go again to take the promised land. And here's the story he tells to anyone who will listen. In Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, it says, The people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kenesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord has promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said then joshua blessed caleb son of jephunneh and gave him hebron as his inheritance caleb's story sounded something like this god was good i was faithful life ended up being really really hard but god never stopped being faithful and i never stopped moving forward and everything god said he would do for me he did when your dad talks like that you have faith when your father-in-law talks like that, you have faith. When your grandpa and grandma talk like that, you have faith. When your mother talks like that, you grow up with faith. God was faithful, and I tried to follow, and life was really hard, but God never quit being faithful, and I never quit moving forward. And as I look back in life, there wasn't one time where God didn't do what he said he would do. Othniel had a different experience because he had a different set of parents and in-laws speaking into his life. Othniel also let her be experienced victory in spiritual battle. 
He wasn't afraid to fight. He wasn't afraid to move forward. He wasn't afraid to live in faith when he could have lived in fear. In Judges chapter 1, when Caleb was going to go up, he said, does anyone help me? Othniel said, I will help you. And he got to see God move through a struggle he was willing to enter in. Two things help you remember God, and Othniel had both of them. Which one do you have? Or have you forgotten? Two things help you remember God, and Othniel had both of them. He had parents who talked about the stories of God in their life, and he had struggles where he had seen God shown up on his behalf. Two things help you remember God. So which one do you have? Or do you have either? If you're a parent, which one do your kids have? Or do they have either? Are you constantly sharing your stories with them spiritually? Are you constantly rescuing them from their struggles instead of letting them find God on their own and teaching them to pray so they can find God when they go through life struggles? If I were to ask your children who are six years old and above, tell me your dad's story spiritually, dads. Could they tell me? If I were to ask your little girls who are in middle school moms, hey, tell me your mom's story spiritually. Could they tell me? Could they tell me why you believe what you believe? Could they tell me why you come to church, mom? Here's why we go to church on Sunday. Because if the parents don't share their stories, the kids will forget God. And they'll be forced to only find God in the midst of struggles that maybe they shouldn't even have to live in if we would help them navigate their life spiritually by telling them about ours. We see the evil. It's still here today. We see the judge. We can still be like that today. But then we see three really valuable lessons that I want to wrap up with this morning. Number one, we see three lessons. Lesson number one is this. When we quit fighting spiritually, we start failing spiritually. We see three lessons from Othniel that we can take today and apply to our life. When we quit fighting spiritually, we start failing spiritually. So I spent the week with your teenagers in Panama City Beach, Florida, all over the place where we were, were posted these signs in the bathrooms, in the, in the rec hall, down the pier going to the beach because the panhandle of Florida is notorious for dangerous rip currents that suck kids out and away just a few weeks ago. Two seniors on a senior trip from Alabama were killed days before their graduation when a rip current sucked them out. So these are posted everywhere. And for a lot of people, this is what spiritual life looks like. We are just minding our own business, trying to follow God, and something rips us away from God. And instead of trying to escape out of it one way or another, trying to fight back spiritually, trying to get back into the word, trying to get back into prayer, trying to get back into a men's group, trying to get back into a women's group, we get ripped away and we get into a pattern of complacency and we just begin to drift from our spiritual bulkhead, from our spiritual beach towel on the beach. At some point, some of you in here got pulled away. You just got ripped away spiritually from your walk. And instead of trying to fight to the sides to get back, you've just kind of been stuck in a current that's pulling you in the wrong direction spiritually. It's time to escape the complacency of whatever has ripped you away and has kept you drifting from God. It's time to come back. Listen, parents, here's why. We need you. Like your kids in the next generation of our community We need you, adults, not to be ripped away in complacency, but to fight to come back. We need you because of lesson number two. When we stop sharing spiritually, the next generation will start forgetting God. 
If we stop engaging, if we quit fighting, if we quit escaping, if we quit trying to get back to God, then our kids have no chance. When we stop sharing spiritually, the next generation will start forgetting God. I don't know about you. I think this is happening right now in our country. I think we've got a generation who has forgotten. And just turn on the news. Open the newspaper. Go read a magazine. I believe we are living in a generation that is forgetting. And if parents don't come back and push their kids to come back, we are generations, just a few generations away from being a totally godless country. Let me give you an example that one of my best friends is an elementary educator in Ohio. And they posted a picture of what they are all going to be required to have in their kindergarten, first grade, and second grade classrooms next year to teach kids to, do, uh, to deal with school shootings tuned to the, to the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. They're teaching their kids to sing, lock down, lock down, lock the door, shut the lights off, say no more. Go behind the desk and hide, wait until it's safe inside, lock down, lock down. It's all done, now it's time to have some fun. You tell me things are okay. You tell me things are okay when, when kids are learning that instead of the Pledge of Allegiance. When kids are learning that instead of being able to pray in school. You, you tell me we've not lost a generation. We, we can have the discussion. But it's going to take a generation of parents fighting to get back for our kids. Our kids need you to fight to get back. I listened to the student baptisms this week on the beach on Thursday. And almost every one of them started this way. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't go to church much. I I, I wasn't really raised in church. A lot of them said that. Here's the weird thing. I know a lot of their families personally. And I know that wasn't their parents' experience. You say, what do you mean? I mean, their parents did grow up in church. But now their kids don't. I've met very few multi-generation unchurched families. You say, what do you mean by that? I've met very few. There are some. Yours may be one. There are very few people who multi-generation, great-grandfathers, grandparents, parents, who like somewhere in their generation, someone didn't attend church. It's it's rare in America to meet multi-generational, non-churched families. For most, it was one generation. They got busy with work. They got busy chasing around family. And they forgot about the God who makes the work possible and the family important. I thought about those kids not being raised in church, and I thought, come on, mom and dad, you got to help. Or we, we are going to lose this generation. They're not going to lose themselves. We are going to lose this generation. I think about the parents in our church who, after a long weekend or a busy weekend, you know, will tell me something like this. And I love, I love when people are engaged, but they'll say, you know, we had a long night, so we just kind of slept in and we streamed. And I think, great, what about your kids? What are they streaming? What do they learn? Oh, you know, I had some business that we wanted to stay at the lake. I'm just going to watch the sermon sometime during the week. What about your kids? You know, as a parent, half the reason you come to church is for your kids. Probably 50% of the Sundays that you come, there's something better you could be doing. But you think, if I don't get my kids there, they will not learn the stories about God and they will forget God. So I live spiritually for the sake of my kids. And the good news for us, I guess, is lesson number three. Lesson number three is, hey, we need a rescuer who knows the heart of God, like Othniel. We need a rescuer that can remind us of the works of God, like Othniel. We need a rescuer that will help us in our struggle, like Othniel, but we have a better one, and his name is Jesus. 
See, what we're going to find out through the book of Judges is that every judge we meet falls short of who Jesus is, but Jesus is the one offered to us, thank God. And Jesus is better than Othniel. I mean, just like Othniel, he'll go up and fight, and he'll win spiritual battles that we can't fight and win on our own. When all of us say, I don't think I can deal with that, Jesus says, I will. I will. When all of us say, I don't want to face the punishment for my sin, Jesus says, I will. When all of us say, I don't want to face Satan down, you know, in 40 days of temptation, Jesus says, I will. So he becomes a better Othniel to rescue us. Number two, we see in Jesus someone who will not only live on mission, but he will teach the next generation to do the same. He'll show us how, and then he'll tell us how, and then he'll help us as we walk like him. We see Jesus is the better Othniel, number three, because his story... And his struggles teach us what we need to know about God for our spiritual journey. He's leading so we can follow well, and he tells us his story, and he shows us our struggles. We need Jesus because, number four, he has done battle. Because he's done battle, we no longer have to suffer in spiritual slavery. Because he's done battle, we don't have to suffer in depression. Because he's done battle, we don't have to suffer in addiction. Because he's done battle, we don't have to live in past regrets. Because Jesus has done battle, we can have spiritual freedom. And number five, because Jesus is the better Othniel, allowing Jesus to be the leader of your family can lead to a generation of peace. It can lead to a generation of peace. Maybe the most overlooked verse of the entire text I read today is Judges 3.11. After we read about Othniel rescuing the people, it says this, the land had peace for 40 years. You say, which 40 years? Like 1950 to 1990, 1945 to 1985, like which 40 years? It's not a real 40 years. You say, wait a minute, we can't trust the Bible? No. Yes, you can trust the Bible, but no, that's not a 40-year period. 40 years is a metaphor. It's a metaphor in the Old Testament. You say, what does it mean? 40 years in the Old Testament means this. It's a term used for a family generation. Here's what 40 years means. Me, my kids, and my grandkids. That's what 40 years means. 40 years doesn't mean a period on a calendar. 40 years means this. Me, my kids, and my grandkids. You say, what is this saying? This is saying that when a parent will step out and say, I'm going to follow Jesus for you, for your kids, and for your grandkids, a generation can live at peace with Jesus. But it takes one saying it, it'll be me. It might not be a mom and a dad at first. Some of you are single parents. Some of you are single spiritual parents. You're going to have to fight for your whole family for a little while. But when someone connects to Jesus, the better judge, the better Othniel, a generation, me and my kids and my grandkids can live at peace. You say, Christian, that's not been my experience. We have so many people in our congregation who have kids in their 20s who are away from God right now, but they were raised in church. Listen to me. They'll come back. They'll come back. I'm more worried about the kids who are 10 that don't come to church ever than the kids who are 25 and came to church every Sunday and are, are, are away. They'll come back. I believe scripture promises that and that there's a seed of faith planted deep in their hearts. But parents, it's up to us not to lose the third generation. Would you pray with me this morning?